the king slain is the story that we find in this chapter. I was looking at the news yesterday afternoon, and that can always be a depressing thing, but uh, there was an interesting item maybe you saw about it. President Biden and his wife were in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, where they have a vacation home, and uh, they had to be evacuated. Now, I know exactly where Rehoboth Beach is. I, I grew up in Maryland, and my family used to vacation in Rehoboth Beach almost every summer. It's a little tiny town on the outer banks of the Delmarva Peninsula, the Atlantic on one side and a bay on the other, hardly any landmass to it at all. Yesterday, while the Bidens were in their vacation home there, a private plane veered into forbidden airspace. There was no intentional wrongdoing. The guy had the radio turned to the wrong channel, and uh, he didn't check for any flight advisories before he took off. So, of course, he was greeted by two fighter jets and escorted to uh, a safe landing space. Everyone else was scurrying, though. The president and his wife were uh, shuttled away in a limo. People in the town were scrambling for cover. They didn't know if there was some calamity about to happen. But, you know, it's a great example about how the way our Secret Service will move heaven and earth to protect the first family. And it doesn't matter uh, what political stripe they are, that's the procedures they go through. The first family of any nation always gets choice security. And when that security, though, is breached and there's a death, the tragedy is much bigger than for any other family. The tragedy extends to the whole nation. And the story we're looking at today in 1 Samuel 31, Saul's security is breached with fatal consequences. He's been leading his men in war, but it is a war he could not win because he was not only fighting against the Philistines, he was fighting against the plan of God. And in keeping with the prophecies of Samuel, King Saul was due to fall. The time of terrible fulfillment had come. What we're going to learn from this chapter is that Saul's sad fall and battle proves just how true God's word is and paves the way for the new king to rise. I'd like us at this time to read the 31st chapter of 1 Samuel, beginning in verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle went heavily against Saul, and the archers hit him and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and pierce me through with it. Otherwise these uncircumcised will come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his sword and fell on it. When his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died with his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his men on that day together. When the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley with those who were beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned the cities and fled. Then the Philistines came and lived in them. It came about on the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his weapons 
and sent them throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his weapons in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. Now, when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and walked all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. They took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. The Lord add blessing to the reading and now to the study of his word. This story is depressing <laughs> and gruesome, full of references to fleeing, falling, striking, wounding, dying, stripping, impaling, burning. It's all in fulfillment of a divine word of judgment. Samuel had told Saul in chapter 28 that he and his sons would die in what would be 24 hours. Chapters 29 and 30 back up in time a little bit to catch us up with events in David's life, but now it's time for the storyteller to show how the word was fulfilled. One irony about this chapter is God's name is never mentioned once, but God is there in fearsome, awesome silence. His word, which was previously spoken, is hanging heavy over the story, and he sovereignly guides events to its awful end. There is no new word for Saul. How terrible when men can no longer hear God. The only word they have is the word of judgment which has been announced before. There is no running from the word of God. Maybe you're thinking this is a very bad way to end a book. You notice that uh, we come to 2 Samuel after this and you think, who would end a book this way? <laughs> but remember that this is really not the end of the book. The books of Samuel were originally one book. And some centuries in the ancient days, it was divided into two just because of its length. And yet, this is a fitting break point in the middle because Saul's passing will make way for God's bringing up David in to lead the realm. A new beginning will start after this old leader is gone. A brief overview of what we'll see today. There is a royal bloodbath in verses 1 through 7. And there's a gory aftermath in verses 8 through 13. And yet, we're going to find some things in this sad, dark story that are going to point us to Christ and to the great plan of God, which is not overthrown as Saul's reign is overthrown. So let's go to that first half of the story, verses 1 to 7, the royal bloodbath. It begins with a summary of sorrows. Verse 1 is a summary statement that describes most of what happens in the battle scene. And the first thing to note is the ironic timing of these events. Now, our English Bibles read it this way. Now, the Philistines were fighting against Israel. That doesn't sound unusual at all, but the Hebrew grammar of this verse is a little unusual. It's not a regular kind of verb that's used, we're fighting. Instead, it's a, uh, this is as technical as I'll get, it's a participle. Uh, and you think, why do we have in grammar class now? But wh what that suggests is that the activity described here is in correlation with the previous stories. 
That is, while the events of chapter 30 were happening down in the south with David, at the same time, these events were happening up in the north. Some versions even translate it this way. Meanwhile, the Philistines were fighting against Israel. We were studying the last couple times together that David was down at Ziklag in the south and pursued the Midianites even further south, and God gave him a great victory. At the same time, on the same day, up in the north, God was bringing Saul to an end. David took spoils from his enemies, and Saul has taken spoil from his enemies. Both are fighting over 100 miles apart from each other, and yet their outcomes are worlds apart. That's the ironic timing. And the rest of the verse tells us that there's utter terror. The men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. In verses 1 and 2, which we'll look at in a moment, the Philistines are mentioned four times. Almost like it's a, a, a drumbeat of war. They keep coming and coming and coming and they are winning the scene here now up in the north returns to where chapters 28, 7 and 28 have been. The Philistines are at Shunem, uh, over more on the left area, whereas the Israelites are over there at Mount Gilboa in the back. And you can see what a flat terrain this is, except for those, for those mountains. The Jezreel Valley is a beautiful place, but it is a bad place to face off against the Philistines. Because the Philistines have something Israelites don't have. They have iron chariots. And this is one reason that the Philistines controlled the plain. It's called the Philistine Plain. We now call it the Gaza Strip. They controlled that for a long time because the Israelites were intimidated by their advanced weaponry. They try fighting them there in the flats, and it goes terribly, so they retreat up into the higher altitude of Mount Gilboa, thinking that the chariots can't go up those hills. And true, they can't, not well. But this strategy only delays the inevitable. Eventually, they fall slain there on the mountainside. This verb for fall, falling in death, is repeated throughout the story here in verse 4 and verse 5 and verse 8. In the next chapter, what we call 2 Samuel 1, David will learn about what's happened to Saul and Jonathan, and he will write a painful lament and three times David will say, how the mighty have fallen, fallen to not rise again. Everything must eventually succumb to God's purpose. There is no escaping what God has ordained. Saul and his men, try as they can, cannot escape the prophetic word. The only thing that puts us on the right side of God's plan is the gospel, in entrusting ourselves to Jesus, giving ourselves over to him, to God's king and God's kingdom plan. That's what puts us on the right side of history and eternity. So this first verse is a summary of sorrows. And now we get a casualty report. Verses 2 through 6 slows down the pace a little bit and tells us how one by one the people around Saul died. First, it's the royal sons who fall. In verse 2, the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. 
Philistines pick off each member of the royal family. We're not told how or whether it was all at once or whether it was one by one, but all of Saul's sons who were there are killed in action. It's likely that they were dispersed in different spots around uh, the troops leading them in different brigades, but they all fall. The first casualty mentioned is such a heartbreaking mentioning. Jonathan. Nothing more is said here about it, but David will speak about it much in the next chapter with heartbreaking elegy. The tragedy, even though it's not discussed here, is unmistakable. He has been a helper. He's been a hero. He's been an honorable son, loyal to the end, and he falls nobly in battle. The other two sons listed are not really discussed anywhere else, only their names are mentioned. There is an irony, though, the last son mentioned here, Malki Shua, so ironic because the name means the king has delivered. Ah. In that name, probably the king is supposed to be God, but what God has done is delivered them over to death. Look how, look how the sin of Saul is affecting generations of people even bringing them down to an early grave. Sin always has a much greater and longer impact than we realize. When we play with sin, we tend to think that we can control its consequences, and we might to a point, but its, its impacts are far more profound than we realize, and we see it here in one of its worst stages. There is, by the way, a fourth son of Saul, not mentioned here, He'll be mentioned in the next book. He's, he goes by several different names. Uh, Ishvi, I-S-H-V-I. Ishbosheth. He's also called Ishbaal. The reason he's not here in battle might be that he's too young to be in battle. Under 20, perhaps. He'll be the only survivor of the immediate royal family. And in 2 Samuel chapter 2, he'll try to run the kingdom. It's a, just a stump little kingdom. He'll do that for a couple chapters before David consolidates power. Just as Samuel had foretold, Saul's sons, who were with him in the thick of things, die. And the prophecy, remember, of what Samuel had said in chapter 28, verse 19, was that Saul would die with them. As the battle worsens, Saul seems to know what's coming. So the casualty report then moves on to the royal circle in verses 3 through 5. That third verse says, The battle went heavily against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Saul is supposed to be in the most protected spot. There are other battle scenes where Saul has a circle of wagons round about him, but whatever has been prepared in this hasty retreat has left him vulnerable. The battle was heavy against him. That word, Kaved, a word that elsewhere translates into things about glory. <laughs> no glory for Saul. The glory's all gone. All he feels is the weight of judgment. By the end, it will be the Philistines who get all the glory, or so they think. The chariots can't reach Saul uh, up in the hills, but one thing that the Philistines and other ancient armies often did is they would position archers in their chariots. So they would station themselves in a good spot and use their chariots as a platform. 
and the archers are able to find Saul. Saul takes a shot in a bad spot and is apparently mortally wounded. The Hebrew text reads, the archers found him, found him, which uh, is a way of describing something that sounds like a happenstance. The archers aren't even really credited for their aim. It's really the sovereign work of God that brings that arrow home. In a sense, it's the Lord who brings the mortal blow. In verse 4, it says, Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and pierce me through with it. Otherwise, these uncircumcised will come and pierce me through and make sport of me. He knows the end is near, begs his armor-bearer to finish him off. Uh, kings and some other high-level uh, figures in battle would have a soldier next to them who would do their own fighting, but they would also assist him in handing them weapons and things and also would be a bodyguard. He doesn't want the Philistines to torture him, and particularly that they would get the maximum satisfaction uh, of gloating and boasting by watching him die and parading him around. It, it was actually customary in the ancient Near East for conquering armies, if you could get the enemy's king to make sport of them. Very often, uh, conquered kings would be blinded and turned into groveling slaves. They would often live in the royal palace of their conqueror and forced to live under the table in the dining hall where they would beg people to feed them. It was a despicable, shameful way to be. Think about what the Philistines did to Samson hundreds of years before. Blinded him, turned him into a slave that they brought out now and then for their amusements. Think about what Nebuchadnezzar did to King Zedekiah, the last king of Judah. Uh, dragged him before the imperial court, killed his children in front of him, and then gouged out his eyes so that the last thing he saw was the death of his family. This is the kind of thing that Saul is concerned about. Verse 4, it's sort of sad. These are the last words of Saul that we know of. No meaningful speech, no prayer, just a request for assisted suicide. How different from the last words of David. The last several chapters of uh, near the end of 2 Samuel are full of prophetic statements by David and speeches, profound utterances, but not Saul. I suppose there is something positive in what he says. At least he still recognizes that these Philistines are not God's people. He, he refers to them as these uncircumcised. At least he never became a pagan himself. He saw that there was supposed to be a difference between the covenant people of God and the outside world. But he lacked faith, and so he did not reap the benefits of the covenant, only its curses. In the Hebrew text, as well as in the English text, the very last word that Saul utters is, me. Me. And that so typifies his life. Separated from God, focused on self. Living for self will be the death of us. It is a sad, small way to find oneself in, to come to the end of life and see that you spent it all on yourself. 
Now, at the end of verse 4, we're told that the armor-bearer would not do it, for he was greatly afraid. Hence debated what he was afraid about. Maybe he was just paralyzed in the battle and couldn't bring himself to do anything, but I prefer to think that he had the mindset that David had, that he dare not put his hand out against the Lord's anointed. You know, David had been Saul's armor-bearer for a while and knew it was his job to protect his life. Even though David had opportunity again and again as time went on to take it, he did not. And I think this man had a fear of God. Hebrew people reading this story couldn't help but think of someone else a few centuries before who had said something like this. We think of Gideon as one of the great judges of Israel, and he was. His sons, not so much. He had a son named Abimelech. The name means something like father of a king, <laughs> Judges chapter 9, and he acclaims himself to be king. Now, the, the nation as a whole did not regard him as such, so he's not reckoned to be Israel's first king, but he's probably the first one who claimed to be that. Uh, and eventually he's ousted, and there's a battle, and he is mortally wounded when a woman throws a large millstone out the window and hits him on the head. And we're told in Judges 9:54 he begged his armor-bearer to kill him, to spare him the indignity of being killed by a woman. And the armor-bearer does kill him. Here, though, this armor-bearer seems to know that as wrong as Saul is in so many ways, he is still the Lord's anointed. And he cannot bring himself to do what Saul commands. So at the end of the verse... We're told, so Saul took his sword and fell on it. I won't show you any pictures, but there are actually pictures from the ancient world of this being done. Basically, the, the sword would be braced in an upward position, and Saul falls and impales himself. He falls in death. The beginning of the book told us of a bad leader who fell to his death. Remember Eli, the high priest? who had allowed his sons to be so corrupt. Eli, who, who by the, the standards of the law, should have retired decades earlier, but kept hanging in there to the detriment of the nation. When he heard word that the Ark of the Covenant had been taken and that his sons were dead, he fell backwards out of his chair and died. At the beginning of the book, there's a corrupt leader who falls. And now at the end, another one falls. Both of them served for 40 years. Both had disqualified themselves. Saul took his sword and fell on it. The Hebrew text is very brief, even briefer than it is in English. It's just five Hebrew words. Simple and short, but it is momentous. It is the death of the first king. It is death by suicide. I'm going to share something about the topic of suicide in a few minutes, but for now, consider this, that Saul has been on a collision course with God for a long, long time. And that is a course which is a suicide mission. Whether you intend it to be or not, as Saul has done to himself here, colliding with God is an impact you cannot survive. It is best to turn unto him and receive and believe his son 
who is the king of the ages. In the fifth verse, there's a report of another suicide. When his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Maybe he feared becoming a toy for the Philistines as well. Maybe he feared being blamed for Saul's death by someone who would find him. Whatever his thoughts, he follows his king and descends into Sheol with him and Saul's sons. I'm going to say something briefly about the topic of suicide, and this is really a matter that could easily take its own an entire message. There are only seven stories of suicide in the Bible, seven people said to commit suicide, and two of them are right here. Some of these are assisted suicide, some are unassisted. In the book of Judges, there is Abimelech, assisted suicide, and there is Samson, who kills himself as he kills many Philistines. Here is the story of Saul and his armor-bearer, and in 2 Samuel, there will be the evil advisor Ahithophel, who will take his own life. In the book of Kings, King Zimri will take his life. And then in the New Testament, Judas takes his life. Perhaps we could add Jonah to this list because I think he attempts suicide and is thwarted in it. In all of these examples, everyone except Samson is portrayed as something other than noble. Samson is trying to kill enemies and he's a casualty of his own actions. But all of these stories, including Samson, are part of tragic stories. None of these people are great role models of faith. Even Samson, at his best, isn't that great of a judge. All had gotten into their problems because of some great sin. Their circumstances had become so mired because of prior choices. And in almost every instance, there's a shadow of guilt that hangs over the story. Now, why do I say all this? Uh, Anyone hearing this needs to know that in the deep sorrows of life, and they can become very deep and very painful, please know that there is a better way to respond. There are other ways uh, to interact with God and to find His grace. The hope of the gospel of Jesus gives us so much to hold on to. Life is worth the living when we take Christ's view of eternity and take hold of gospel promises. This past week we had the memorial service for a longtime member of our church, Bill Lohr. Bill, many of you know, had been in a wheelchair from the age of 18 to when he died at 74. Paraplegic and yet had chosen to live a life of joy and was so now, the the testimonies that were shared both from the pulpit as well as informally was that we never ever heard him say a negative thing. He knew grace and life was worth the living. Uh, Some of you know of opposite stories. People have been in similar situations and their life becomes dark and miserable. And instead of holding on to grace, they hold on to resentment, and there's this downward, darkward spiral. It does not need to be that way, especially when you take the long look, the eternal look, that there is a glory that outweighs all of the, uh, the burden of stress and strain that we face in this life. Look unto Christ and find in Him light and life. 
Saul has been looking away from God's anointed one. He is an anti-Messiah, and so he has descended, like Judas, into darkness and despair. Casualties of the king, and there's one more casualty report. The royal corps is mentioned in verse 6. Thus Saul died with his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his men on that day together. This concluding verse of the casualty report adds some new ones, and, and they're listed, all of the people here are listed in terms of their importance, not in the terms of when they died. Uh, first there's Saul, the king, and then his three sons, then the armor-bearer, and then all of the other men around him, which doesn't mean the entire army, but the royal corps that was closest to him, that elite corps, could not stop God's plan of judgment. And now what Samuel had said 24 hours before has come about. Saul, whose name is pronounced Shaul, is now in Shaol. Casualties of the king. And then there's a report of the retreat to ruin in verse 7. When the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley, with those who were beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned the cities and fled. Then the Philistines came and lived in them. Word quickly spreads in that large valley, especially on the perimeter near where the battle was. Israelites on the north end of it and those on the east side of the Jordan panic, and they choose to run to fight another day. Better to be refugees than to face a holocaust. They abandon their cities and towns because they knew that if they'd stayed, they'd be killed or enslaved. And then the Philistines, over the days that follow, move in, take over, and they're able in that spot there, the Jezreel Valley, they are able to dominate so much. They, 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 they control now the major trade route that runs through Israel. It's right there. They're able to govern commerce and tax people to death as they want. They've separated the northern tribes and the southern tribes. They now control more land of Israel than before Saul was king. How ironic, because the Israelites were so insistent, we need a king, we need a king now, we need a king who'll fight for us. Look at the, the folly of going our own way instead of waiting on the Lord to bring about his chosen one at his time. We come to the second half of the story, verses 8 to 13, and this is a gory aftermath. And by gory, I mean that pretty much every verse mentions dead bodies and grotesque things. Uh, first, there's the gloating of the Philistines in verses 8 through 10. <laughs> and their gloating is, makes up an inglorious gospel. Look at verses 8 and 9. It came about on the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head stripped off his weapons, and sent them throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. In battles, it was customary for the losing army to try to retrieve cadavers, if possible, but this defeat was so complete it was not possible. The next day, uh, they've slept and partied some, and they go through the fields the hills, and they start stripping away gear and garments from the dead Israelites, and they find a prize, the royal family. And they do their worst, behead Saul, steal his gear, and then parade it throughout the land. 
Remember what Paul, Saul had said to the, his armor bearer, lest they make sport of me. They did it anyway, Saul. The king's, king's heads, by the way, were considered to be prized trophies that you'll find art throughout the ancient Near East of uh, heads being stuck here and there. Here's an example. Here's one of the Assyrian kings. He's having a lovely dinner with his wife while the, ki- the head of the king of Elam is hanging from a tree over to the left. This kind of imagery is all over amongst the, the Assyrians and Egyptians. At the beginning of the book, the Philistines had taken the ark as a trophy. <clears throat> now they take the head of Israel's king along with his headless corpse and all of his battle regalia. For one last time, Saul has been stripped of his royal garments. This bad news had spread around Israel, but for the Philistines, this is good news. And they start spreading it around Philistia. Saul had been an obstacle to them for 40 years. No more. They parade him around. They take his remains to pagan temples, perhaps as part of some ceremonies. It's not hard to imagine that Philistine soldiers had made uh, vows to Dagon or whatever they're, the different gods to say, you help us give victory, we'll come bring this offering. And here they, just like David had taken the sword of Goliath eventually to the tabernacle, so they take these prizes from Saul. It's really sick. Wrong religion can make people really sick. They're caring about good news. Good news. You know, if, if you were to write the New Testament in Hebrew and talk about being evangelists and spreading the good news, this is the same phrase you'd use. But instead of the glorious gospel of Christ, God's anointed one, it is the inglorious gospel of the death of God's anointed one. Proclaiming a gospel is exactly what these people are doing. It's just not a good gospel. They Uh, Proclaiming a gospel is announcing world-changing news. The Philistines thought that their gods had overcome Israel's God, and they go back to their temples to celebrate. John Woodhouse said, "I, I doubt that many Philistines were ashamed of the gospel that day. What great news for the temple of Dagon! The humiliation of an earlier day had been overturned at last. A false gospel. You know... There are all kinds of false Philistinish gospels still afoot today. When people gloat that God's way has been undone or that God's plan seems to be upset, that is a false gospel. John Woodhouse, who I quoted before, continues, The Philistine gospel is still to be heard whenever human beings believe they have triumphed over God. Every mockery of God and his people, every expression of scorn toward the Lord Jesus and his followers is a version of the Philistine gospel. And you don't have to go too far on social media or the internet and find people trumpeting the good news that God is dead or that Christianity has been proven false or that God's people are stupid or what have you. It's a version of the Philistine gospel. In verse 10, it continues on with an indecent display. We're told they put his weapons in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. 
There were many temples in the pagan world to the goddess Ashtaroth. In fact, in other lands, she was called Astarte. Actually, it's not really a name. It's a generic name for whoever the chief goddess is who's the consort of the chief god. It's sort of like the name Baal or Baal is not a name but a title. Uh, Ashtaroth, Astarte, was sometimes reckoned to be the goddess of war. And in the Philistine territory, the goddess Astarte and the god Dagon sometimes even shared temples because they were considered at times to be husband and wife. In fact, at the city of Bethshan, that's mentioned here, there are two temples at the base of the hill, one for Dagon and one for Astarte. Whichever temple they put the remains in, or the relics in, his body is put on indecent display on one of the hills, on one of the walls there at Bethshan. Bethshan is a very old city, uh, it apparently had been under Philistine control for quite a while. It's just a few miles east of where the battle had been. And it was also customary in the ancient Near East to put on display trophies of the people you'd killed. Uh, the Assyrians were famous for this. They would impale the cadavers of those they'd killed and put them outside city walls as a way of publicly shaming their enemies, as a way of saying to everyone, look what will happen to you if you fight against us. It's the same kind of thinking the Romans had when they did crucifixion, lifting up the guilty of the victim so that all could see. Here we're told that he was fastened to the wall. Actually, it could be better rendered nailed to a wall. Walls are made of stone, of course, but some kind of wood frame or structure would have been hung around it. Isn't this ironic? Israel's first king was killed and hung outside on walls. And Israel's last king, King Jesus, would be hung and killed outside city walls. But oh, what a difference between them. The story ends on a more positive note. Verses 11 to 13, we see the boldness of the grateful. Honor is found in the midst of all of this shame. There is a brave recovery operation initiated by the men of Jabesh Gilead in verse 11 and following. Verse 11, now when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and walked all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. Time has fast forwarded a little bit, perhaps as much as a week. The events of 2 Samuel 1, when David gets the news, will be some days before this event. But this event needs to be mentioned here. The people of Jabesh Gilead, you can see that on the map in the bottom right there, had a special relationship with Saul. In fact, the first great feat that Saul performed in chapter 11 was that he went and delivered the people of Jabesh Gilead from their oppressor, the Ammonites, King Nahash, whose name means serpent. The people of Jabesh Gilead and the people of Saul's family on the other side of the river had ancestral connections with each other. And when they heard about what had happened, they got to work. About 12 miles away from Bethshan, they traveled through the night, probably traveling through a river ravine. 
and took, would take them all night to navigate that. They do it secretly so that they can snatch back the king's body. And then at the end of the verse, and in the verse 13, they begin honorable burial efforts. The end of the verse 12 says, They came to Jabesh and burned them there. They took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. They burned these bodies probably out of a sense of necessity. Perhaps they were too decrepit to be buried with honor. Uh, they were certainly beyond the point of embalming at this point. So they perform a partial cremation, something that archaeologists have found evidence from in this same region, that bodies would be burned down to the bone, and then the bones were sometimes buried. Nothing negative is said about this here. You know, cremation is not forbidden in the Old Testament. In fact, there's a few death penalty cases where it's required. But here, the effort is about showing as much honor as possible to the remains. They bury him under an unusual kind of tree, a tamarisk tree. Normally, these trees do not grow in the hill country like Jabesh Gilead or like Saul's town of Gibeah. They are a sandy soil sort of tree. Apparently, they've been specially planted up there. And this is a, a tree that Saul liked. We're told back in chapter 22 that uh, Saul was holding court in his town under this unusual tamarisk tree, a tree like this one. And so they bury him under a tree that he favors, there under the shade, the kind of shade in which he had held court before. Years later, David would learn of Saul's burial and have him reburied in the tomb of his father Kish. But for now, these are the only honors that can be afforded. And after they bury him, they fast seven days, a period often associated with great grief, also associated in the Old Testament law with periods of cleansing after significant defilement. And it seems that there is a pious, godly motive behind what they do. Saul's sad fall in battle proves just how true God's word is. And it paves the way for his new king to arise. A few reflections as we conclude this morning. I want us to think of some ways that Saul is like and unlike a couple other key people. Saul is like Adam in some ways. Adam, you see, was made to reign. The very first command given to Adam in the garden is in chapter 1, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. It's a word of government. Part of the image of God, of Adam, was to reign as God's representative. We can only imagine what that might have been like had he not disobeyed. How beautiful life would have been. But all was undone by his selfish disobedience to the word. And so, like Saul, wanting the folly of his own way brought his reign to an end. Saul is like Adam. <laughs> and in some ways, and I pray in lesser ways, we are like him too. Saul is also like Christ in some ways, and also unlike him. The similarities, of course, are that they are both kings, the first anointed king of Israel and the last 
anointed king. Both of them are messiahs. Both of them were handed over to their enemies and abused. Both of them were publicly hanged in shame and disgrace. Both of them had loyal followers who took great risk in recovering their bodies to honor them in burial. But the differences are more profound. Saul died under judgment for his own sins. Jesus died under judgment for our sins. Saul was an apostate who lived for himself. Jesus was the faithful one who died for us so that we might enter into the everlasting kingdom. And so the death of Saul paves way for the new king, for David. David uh, will not be the miracle-working savior of the world, but his greatest son will be. And so this sad chapter, this bad news, prepares the way for the good news that we celebrate as we come to the Lord's table this morning. Join me, please, in prayer. Gracious God, we thank you for this somber portion of your word. It is an unpleasant series of verses, but they are holy, and what they teach us is so rich. We need to be mindful of your plan and your kingdom purposes revealed finally and fully in Jesus. He's the king who came to suffer and die for us, to make us fit to enter into the everlasting kingdom. So, Lord, may we follow in the path of Jesus and not in the path of Saul. May we follow after your kingdom purposes through the life and forgiveness that comes through Jesus and not in the self-centeredness that so characterized Saul. May we glory in the cross of Jesus, that which brought him so much shame was really the way of your shining the light of glory into our lives and into this world. Because on that shameful cross, you reversed the curse and paid the price for sin that we might enter into everlasting life. In the name of Jesus, we ask all these things. Amen.